Blended Lopate at Large, I'm Blended Lopate. In her new book, Sea Change, an Atlas of Islands in a Rising Ocean, Christina Gerhardt investigates the challenges faced by low-lying areas because of the de- devastating impacts of climate change. And she examines the strategies in the fight against climate change, from hard engineering solutions like seawalls and raising islands to soft engineering approaches like restoring coral and oyster reefs and safeguarding mangrove forests and wetlands. Her book, which was named one of the best science books of 2023 by the New Scientist, is published by the University of California Press and brings Christina Gerhardt, an associate professor at the University of Hawaii at Manoa and a senior fellow at the University of California, Berkeley, to our show now. Welcome. It's so great to be with you. Thanks for having me on, Leonard. Your book is divided into sections about the Arctic Ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, the Indian Ocean, the Persian Gulf, the Pacific Ocean, the Caribbean Sea, the Gulf of Mexico, and the Antarctic Ocean. Are most or all of the islands and coastlines in those areas endangered? Yeah, thanks for highlighting. It is really sea change. My book takes a global view of the issue of sea level rise impacting low-lying islands. And all of the islands that are in the book in these various regions are going to be impacted. The impacts, however, are going to be different. Um, So we're not talking about all of these islands that are in the book necessarily being underwater. However, islands that are, there's two kinds of islands in my book in Sea Change. There's high islands or volcanic islands, which, as the name suggests, are islands that still have active volcanoes on them. And then there's low-lying islands or atolls. And atolls, your listeners may or may not know, are islands that were once volcanoes, but they're basically, the volcano has submerged and they're the ring around what used to be the tip of the volcano. So those are the islands that are most at risk. Some of them are just mere feet above sea level rise, the most at risk are the Marshall Islands, Kiribati, Tuvalu in the Pacific, and then the Maldives in the Indian Ocean. Volcanic islands, coming back to your question, are going to be impacted because they have a peak on them. Often they still have, like I mentioned, volcanoes that are still active. So people cluster around the coastline. And when you have that high population density, and then you have sea level rise coming in, that means that people clustered along the coastline are going to be impacted. Well, you mentioned seawalls, raising islands, restoring coral and oyster reefs, etc. How much of that is actually being implemented? Is this just theoretical at this point, or are we seeing major changes? Yeah, thanks for the question about the solutions, which I think is so important to focus on. You know, the topic of sea level rise, I mean, anything related to climate crisis really is pretty bleak. And part of the the conceit or the project of sea change is to really smuggle in to listeners' uh, homes through a coffee table book, what is kind of a bleak topic, but to put an optimistic spin on it, because your question you're asking, is it too late? to do something about this? And the short answer is no, it's not too late. Solutions can be put forward. I mentioned in the book, I talk about focus on two different kinds of solutions. Hard engineering on the one hand, which would be things like seawalls or raising entire islands. If your listeners are in the New York City area, they obviously don't need me to explain seawalls at length because the big U that's being put on 
put around the southern tip of, of Manhattan is a project that has is been ongoing and is unfolding right now. Uh, soft engineering is the other large category that you mentioned at the top of the show, and that includes things like restoring and protecting coral reefs and oyster reefs, and also mangrove forests and wetlands, um, more about which in a moment, because that was in the news yesterday, obviously. Um, the coral reefs are, are too basically to the oceans, what rainforests are, which have been in the news a lot, you know, cutting down the rainforest and how terrible that is because they, they absorb so much CO2 emissions. So corals are to the oceans what rainforests are to the land. They absorb a lot of emissions. The ocean absorbs a lot of emissions. And corals are in the temperate, uh, the tropical zones. Oysters are more in the temperate zones, for example, around New York again. And there has been a movement afoot to restore them. It's estimated that about 85% of corals, as well as oysters, globally have been decimated. We've done that in cities in order around coastlines in order to dredge, in order to create harbors, in order to create areas for shipping. And in the New York City area project, the Billion Oyster Project has been doing really great work to restore some of the oyster reefs. Um, these reefs are really important if you're facing the ocean and you imagine the waves coming at you, they always have a natural eroding effect on a coastline. If you have a reef there, it buffers some of that wave action. Now, if you layer on top of that wave action, sea level rise with higher waves coming at you, that's where the reefs play an important role in buffering waves and, and to some extent helping to buffer against sea level rise. They're not a 100% solution, but they are better than nothing. And then if you have on top of that a storm coming in, you know, Hurricane Sandy, for example, when it came through, that can really help with the, the real risk of hurricanes being the storm surge, those super high waves that can come in. Now, if you turn 180 and you face back towards the land, if you have water coming at you in the form of runoff, what what oysters do that's really important is they filter the water. So all that water that runs off, if you're in a rural environment, it picks up all of the pesticides or flows over dung from uh, livestock. All of that comes into the water as well as everything that's on roadways, all the chemicals uh, that come you know, from cars often. And there's a really important filtering effect that these reefs do. So the work to restore them is really important. Wetlands are really important in all of this kind of work of buffering waves and also filtering. And yesterday's decision by the Supreme Court to not protect mm -hmm. the wetlands in the ways that they previously had been is going to have devastating impacts on about 50% of the wetlands around the U.S. And they're already, you know, we've already seen a decimation mm -hmm. of wetlands. Thanks to the Supreme Court. You you, yeah. you mentioned that this is a coffee table book, but it's a, it's like uh, 10 by 12 or two even even larger. And it includes essays, many maps, art, poetry. Was one of your goals to be both serious and playful, despite the seriousness of your topic? 
Yeah, definitely. That is part of, of the project of Sea Change. I refer to it often as a symphony. And what I mean by that is that it weaves together art, poetry by islanders. So as I mentioned, there's 49 islands in Sea Change. Each one has typically, but not all of them, have a map. And then they have a short text that I wrote. And then there's typically, but not always, a poem written by an islander that follows my text. So it's really the symphony of art essays weaving together the science maps. And then there's a couple of um, art uh, illustrations um, in the book. There's scientific illustrations to to explain some of the concepts, too. I mean, the thing about, you know, coral reefs and oyster reefs, as well as mangrove forests and wetlands, is that they're really important marine habitats. So there's a real commingling of species in these habitats, aside from their their work to protect the coastline. And scientific illustrator Zina Duretsky created these scientific illustrations for the book. Uh, Molly Roy is the cartographer for the book. And then Leah Chandra is the in-house designer at University of California Press, who's really responsible for the book's look. There's tipped in vellum pages that show you what the island on the cover, which is Deal Island in Chesapeake Bay, what it'll look like now, uh, what it looks like now, what it'll look like in 2050, and what it'll look like in 2100 with projected sea level rise. So we use We don't do anything. Yeah, that's exactly. So you get those layers um, showing you that kind of change. And you have uh, a number of essays by noted contributors like Bill McKibben. Yeah, that's right. So I've I've I work. I'm uh, both a professor at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. I've been there for over a decade, um, and then most recently I was Baron Professor at Princeton University in of Environment and the Humanities. I'm also an environmental journalist, and Bill McKibben is someone I've known since I'd say around 2009 when I was covering the Copenhagen Climate conference. And I cover the annual UN climate conference for, uh, typically for the nation. And I met Bill back then. And I think the work that he has done with 350.org to divest from fossil fuels is really important. I also think his work to establish this new organization called Third Act, which is for people who are over 65 to get involved with addressing the climate crisis, recognizing rightly so that people in that age group are the ones who were responsible for the climate crisis happening and not doing enough to take care of it. It's the younger generation thrown into it. What? You're blaming me? I'm over six. I am not blaming you. I'm warmly inviting you to get involved with Third Act. (laughs) (laughs) You point out that sea level rise is an urgent global issue that demands putting aside political differences. We've been talking about political differences in in this country, but Uh, Do you have any sense that the United States and China, for example, might actually address this issue together because of the threats to their islands and the coastal cities? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, so look, the thing about about the climate crisis and sea level rise is that it is a global issue. It's going to impact all of us. Um, it, we may not be living in an area that is affected by sea level rise, and and yet, you know, maybe we're experiencing the wildfires. Maybe we I have tornadoes. I do live in New York. I live in yeah. New York, and it is affected. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of I think I think very few regions are unaffected. And I think this is a global issue. Um, I appreciate the fact that in your question, you're focusing on the U.S. and China because the U.S. is historically the world's largest emitter. Hmm. 
And so when I've been doing interviews for the book, I've been asked, you know, why, you know, why does this matter for people who live in the U.S. who are on the continent and not living on low-lying islands? It's because we are the source historically and to the present day of the emissions that are putting frontline communities, both within the U.S., but also on low-lying islands at risk. China is currently the, the largest emitter. There are, however, that said, some people who argue that the way that the math is done on CO2 emissions um, means that that some of what's on China's ledger, because it's producing so much, should be on the U.S.'s ledger because China is manufacturing goods. That's right. how it gets its CO2 emissions going so high. But those are goods that are really uh, consumed by people in the U.S. And so, you know, some people say that those emissions should be moved our, over to our, We're our side. We're complicit. But uh, in the case of China, which is a huge area, we're talking about coastal cities like Shanghai and Guangzhou. And uh, but also in the United States, 13 million people live in Florida, Louisiana, California, New York and New Jersey, all with long coastlines. Florida right, right now is going through an incredible bunch of storms. No, that's absolutely right. So in the U.S., it's estimated about 40 percent of the population lives along the coastlines. And as you said, you know, putting those numbers differently, that means roughly 13 uh, million people in the states that you named, which is in the order of of impact with Florida. I remember when I started working on this project, I met with a colleague who's an oceanographer to get the, some of the sea level rise data confirmed, the latest by him. And he said, you know, the thing about sea level rise is it's not really a story about the oceans and the water alone. It's really a story about geology. And so with Florida, the important thing to know there is that it's it consists mainly especially in the areas that are most impacted by sea level rise along the southern and the eastern tip and this is this is where the condo collapse also happened which mm -hmm. like the moment i heard about it i thought i looked up where it was and i was like this is absolutely no surprise to me given given the number of factors that i'm aware of impacting that region but, but and it wait, is, wait, let me it, stop you for a second but Global warming was not cited as a factor in that condo collapse. Uh, no, I mean, sea level rise is an issue because, as I was going to say, Florida has uh, in that area consists of limestone, as does the Bahamas. And I refer to it as the Swiss cheese of geology, which means that the sea level pours in not as a line approaching you from the ocean, but it seeps in from below. And that's a whole other order of issue that is important to think about with regard to sea level rise. I have a colleague here, a permanent fellow at the um, at the University of California at Berkeley. And I have a colleague here, Christina Hill at UC Berkeley, who works specifically on adaptation, urban redesign, um, thinking about water seeping in from below. And so I think when listeners hear about sea level rise, they shouldn't think about it as a line approaching them along the coastline somewhere. They should think about water as something that is active within our soil systems and can also seep in from below. So to come back to the condo collapse, Sea level rise was an issue there because that water seeping in from below was responsible in part for corroding the 
corroding the kind of, you know, the concrete in those systems. And that's what led to a vulnerability and the crumbling of, of that building. But I pointed out that uh, the news reports didn't make that connection. And are you concerned that it just seemed to be this mysterious collapse and uh, it was is almost inexplicable? I think, I mean, there were, I think the, the, um, the Miami Herald had a series, and I think they did mention the climate crisis and sea level rise, and the Washington Post did too. And then I wrote an article about it where I definitely mentioned it. But I think your point is well taken, Leonard. Look, like we as the media um, need to do a better job at every single turn, including climate, the climate crisis, which is you know what you're getting at with your question, your comment. We need to mention the climate crisis by name in our coverage of issues that are climate crisis focused. Um, Covering Climate Now is an organization that pulls together climate journalists, and they have uh, really been tracking who explicitly uses the term climate crisis. And I think sometimes as environmental journalists, we think, oh, well, we know it plays a role. We don't need to name it by name. And they're arguing, rightly so, I think, and, and your comment you know, also goes to this point and is spot on. We need to name it by name because some people still need that spelled out. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Christina Gerhardt. Her book, Sea Change, an Atlas of Islands in a Rising Ocean, is published by the University of California Press. And this is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. I mentioned uh, parts of China and the United States as being threatened, but other coastal cities around the world are also endangered. Uh, Important ones, Hong Kong. Mumbai, Amsterdam, Lagos, Manila, Dakar, Ho Chi Minh City. Um, is this a big story in, uh, in, in countries like India and Nigeria and Senegal and Vietnam? Absolutely. I mean, I'm glad that you're focusing on the cities globally that are going to be impacted, which I I plan to. I mean, as as well, you've we'll mentioned, get to the, the islands too. But you know, the but the no, exactly. That I, that's many what I was going to. Millions gonna... of people live in these cities, and they're they're being affected. I live and in New York, exa- and you're saying I'm affected. No, exactly. That's exactly what I was going to say. So sea change does focus on islands, but I'm glad you're focusing on these cities. Because as I was going to say, there are millions of people. These are some of the most populated, populous cities around the world. So millions, uh, billions people live in these cities. And my in my next book, I plan to focus on the impacts of sea level rise on cities specifically. I think in some ways one can read what is happening on low-lying islands as a harbinger of the fate that awaits people who live in coastline communities and in urban areas. The issue with these cities that's so important is, on the one hand, that they are so densely populated, as you mentioned, as I just mentioned. The other thing that's really important about some of the cities uh, that you mentioned that are going to be most impacted by sea level rise is that they have, not all of them, but for some of uh, the nations this holds true, they have a lower GDP. That means more, you know, less economic wiggle room than we do in the U.S. 
they have a lower GDP than we do. And that's true for the islands and sea change as well. So there's a couple of wealthy islands I talk about in sea change. But a lot of the island nations that I talk about uh, are really, I mean, you're talking about subsistence farmer and fisher, right? And what that means is they don't go to the local grocery store or, you know, to the neighborhood restaurant for takeout, you know, to feed themselves. It means that they really rely on what they can fish and what they can farm on their atolls in order to sustain themselves. And one of the impacts of sea level rise on islands is that when you have all that salt water coming in, it upsets the soil salinity. So it salinizes the soil. That means there's more salt in the soil. And that's a problem because plants can't take up salty water. And so you have this agriculture with people who are subsistence farmers. You have this, you know, really living on a threshold. You have this... Uh, agriculture balance really upset. The other thing is when salt water comes in on a lot of low-lying atolls, they really rely on, they don't have rivers running through uh, their atolls. It's not, you know, it's not like the high islands. So for because, the low-lying atolls, because they, they, were, because they were volcanoes, you say. Yeah, exactly. They rely they on rainwater mm -hmm. and they rely on freshwater aquifers for their drinking water. And so when you have salt water coming in, it inundates that freshwater and you don't have enough potable freshwater for humans, for plants, you know, livestock and agriculture. So, you know, those are some of the other impacts of that saltwater inundation through sea level rise. We mentioned the political differences between the United States and China, although we share a problem. What about the islanders around the world? Um, do, do they sh uh, see uh, themselves as sharing a common bond despite their political differences? Yeah, the, this is one of the things that I, I noted when I moved to the University of Hawaii that initially surprised me. There's a great affinity that islanders who are in Hawaii feel with people who are in the Philippines um, and also with people who are in Puerto Rico and in Cuba. And I thought, well, this is kind of interesting. These are widely disparate regions. And the reason is because of the U.S.-Spanish War. These are all territories that when, when Spain lost, they, they were ceded or sold to the U.S. And so that's a historical connection that, that makes people in these areas uh, feel connections to one another. There's a modern day connection that islanders in the Pacific feel. Uh, for example, people in Hawaii feel a connection with people in Guam, feel a connection with people in Okinawa or Marshall Islands. And the reason there is because these are all islands that have U.S. military bases on them. I have a chunky paragraph in the introduction that outlines the 54 islands that have U.S. military bases on them. And I think that's important to take note of. You know, the tourism industry is really important on islands uh, in terms of their economies, but the m military also plays a huge role. And then there's a third thing I would add that makes islanders feel affinity. I was when I was doing research for the book because it includes all this poetry and history, stories about the cultures of islanders written by islanders. I noted that there's a Tongan uh, Pacific Islander, Epeli Haofa, he has this essay that for Pacific Islanders is really well known and famous called Our Sea of Islands. And in it, he talks about how from a continental viewpoint, islands are viewed as remote. Mm -hmm. And he said, it's interesting because islanders really, you know, being in the middle of the Pacific, they view themselves as a vast network of islands that are really connected. So the question there is, what's your center? Glissant, Edward Glissant, uh, 
uh, in Martinique was writing in the Caribbean was writing similarly uh, in the 20th century about uh, what he called Antillianite, which was, comes from the Antilles, the word the Antilles. And he was talking about the relationality among islanders in the Caribbean. And that's a geographic thing, you know, thinking about you know, your geographic center in the Caribbean, but that's also a cultural and historical thing, meaning not looking to a colonial entity anymore um, or looking back in, in his case to, to Africa as a source of history. And I thought how interesting these two different areas and these thinkers are really thinking similar thoughts about relations among islanders. Haven't islanders contributed the least to CO2 emissions, just about 1% of global carbon dioxide emissions? Yeah, that's right. It's 1% uh, that islanders in general have contributed to CO2 emissions. So when I mentioned because previously... Because they're sparsely the, populated or are there other reasons? Yeah, it's because they're sparsely populated. So that 1%, as I was going to say, is in stark contrast to the figures uh, for the U.S. or for China, the, the biggest emitters we were talking about previously. There's a number of reasons for this. The islands are more sparsely populated, but they also do not consume as, as much energy derived from fossil fuels. Instead, a lot of their energy sources are from solar or from wind. Now, interestingly, islands who use more fossil fuels for their energy sources are islands like Hawaii or Puerto Rico that are still tethered to an occupying entity that is the U.S. In Hawaii, about 95% of our electricity, so not 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 transportation, our electricity is generated by the burning of, of fossil fuels, namely oil, which is the most ridiculous way to power your, your air conditioner that I've ever heard of. And we're in the middle of the Pacific. I mean, we have abundant wind and solar pretty much every single day of the year. Puerto Rico has similar figures. And I think one of the things that's going on there, I started tracking this, um, not only for the U.S. and the entities, the islands it occupies, but also for other uh, colonial powers and islands in the in the Caribbean that they are still in connection, relationship with, occupying in some capacity, um, whether it's Commonwealth nations or colonies outright. And the figures are similar. And so I think, you know, having a self-sustaining uh, island economy financially, but all, also environmentally can really go a long way to making sure that these islands are are sovereign and independent. In Puerto Rico, there's huge discussions about this, right? In the wake of Hurricane Maria, are they going to go back to the same system of having oil shipped in for their energy needs, or are they actually going to revamp and just start start building up an, a renewable energy system? Should the nations most responsible for the emissions pay reparations? That's a really great question. I think it's an important issue. So one of the things that came out of last year's United Nations uh, climate negotiations, which yeah. I covered for how, the nation. And how, how is, involved has uh, the United Nations gotten in this this area? Right. So one of the things that came out of last year's United Nations conference, uh, COP27 is, is what it was also called, is an agreement to establish a loss and damage facility. So loss refers to anything that's been permanently lost due to the climate crisis, sea level rise, drought, whatever 
damage refers to something that is not irretrievably lost. And this facility, as they call it in UN speak, because they haven't defined what kind of a funding mechanism it's going to be. This facility basically demands that the global north pay compensation to the global south Mm. because of the kinds of damages that the climate crisis has caused. Um, There's a lot of meetings this spring that took place at the World Bank the IMF that were aiming to establish that facility. And I think it's a it's something that your listeners should know. Loss and damage facility was uh, something that was worked on for 30 years before it was established last fall. It was global South nations that were really pushing hard for it. Among them, uh, Tina Stege, who's climate envoy for the Republic of Marshall Islands, really helped push this forward. Um, Mia Motley, who is from Barbados, she's the prime minister of Barbados, she has been working really intensely on getting the funding, basically the you know everything that comes out of Bretton Woods, right? Um, the IMF, the World Bank, to consider restructuring the process by which they give out loans and demand repayment for loans, because she's rightly pointed out that island nations are burdened, have a double burden. They have to both pay back some of these kinds of loans, and then they have to pay the damages that they incur every single year through climate change impacts. Um, Abram Lustgarten, who writes for both uh, ProPublica and also the New York Times, he did a fantastic piece on Mia Motley a couple of uh, years ago that I would encourage your listeners to check out. I've also written about Mia Motley's work, and she's it's just mind mind-blowing the kind of work that she's doing to rethink some of these financial structures. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Christina Gerhardt. If you sign up to become a member of WBAI during today's show with a contribution of $50 or more, you can receive a free copy of her book, Sea Change, an Atlas of Islands in a Rising Ocean. To do that, just go online to give to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 during today's show, and we'll be happy to send you a copy. That's give and the number 2, WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. But don't forget to make that $50 donation in the name of Leonard Lopate at large, and we thank you very much. And return to Christina Gerhardt. The book, again, Sea Change, an Atlas of Islands in a Rising Ocean from the University of California Press. She's an associate professor at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, a senior fellow at the University of California, Berkeley, former Barron Professor of Environment and Humanities at Princeton University. And she's been published pretty much everywhere. Uh, And... uh, Let's get back to this very urgent story that doesn't get even a smidge of the amount of of attention that it really should receive. Um, Are island plants, wildlife, and natural barriers like oyster reefs, coral reefs, and mangroves facing the possibility of extinction if sea levels continue to rise? 
Oh, that's yeah. I mean, they are really at risk, right? I mentioned previously that that coral reefs and oyster reefs, like an eighty-five percent of them, have been decimated. Uh, that said, there's a lot of efforts afoot to preserve and protect coral and oyster reefs. I am concerned about the increase in ocean temperatures. It's one of the two reasons we have sea level rise, right? Um, the melt at the glaciers. The glaciers of glaciers and land ice at the poles, so the Arctic and the Antarctic is the first reason. The other is warmer water takes up more space. But when the water gets warmer, you also have an increase in ocean acidification. So that higher acidity of ocean water quality leads coral reefs to bleach and then to die off. And so there is a you know a need to turn off the fossil fuel uh, faucet, as it were in order to prevent this kind of impact on oceans in terms of their temperature, which has that sea level rise effect, but also really decimates the coral reefs. Um, there's good news with regard to mangroves, which is that there's a lot of work afoot to restore and protect mangrove forests. So mangroves, I refer to them as these you know, trees that walk on stilts. I'd mentioned previously that not a lot of plants can handle a lot of salt water. Mangroves are unique in that they can handle really high saltwater content. And so they grow along the coastline. They have this really dense tangle web of roots. And they too are really important marine habitats like the coral and oyster reefs that I mentioned previously being important habitats for marine life. Um, the tangle of dense roots for mangroves that are underneath the water is a marine habitat that tiny fish like to live in. And it's because the large predator fish can't get into that tangle. So the tiny fish swim around in that dense tangle of roots and, until they're larger or older. But the tangle there, uh, the mangroves along the coastline, that does important work of the kind that I was mentioning earlier with coral and oyster reefs to protect the, the coastline and buffer it against wave action. You know, a lot of these, these mangrove forests have been removed from islands in the temperate zone and from coastlines precisely because we want the kind of sandy shore when we go somewhere, you know, as tourists, if we visit an island, what we might imagine is tourism. Yeah. Yeah. And so we've removed a lot of these mangroves in order to have an unobstructed view to have that beach and then to have the hotel right there. But then then there's nothing to really protect the coastline. I mean, in, in Hawaii at Waikiki Beach, we spend billions of dollars every single year on what gets called reach, uh, beach replenishment. And what beach replenishment is is sand literally being shipped in. So there's CO2 emissions right there in, in the shipping. And then we drive it, we truck it, some more CO2 emissions. We truck it down to Waikiki Beach and we dump it there so that when tourists come, they have the beach that they expect. But a lot of the sand that is at Waikiki Beach is not is not originally from Hawaii. And I know in Spain, they have talked about stopping Beach replenishment. I just saw an article in The Guardian a couple weeks ago about this because it's so prohibitively expensive. And they are turning instead to restoring some of their coastlines because they realize that's an important protection against sea level rise impacts. Are, so the Mediterranean is, can, can also be dangerous. Are, yeah, yeah. Are islanders around the world vulnerable to food insecurity uh, and also unemployment and homelessness? 
Um, they're absolutely vulnerable to food insecurity for the reasons that I mentioned previously, right? So the people who live on low-lying island nations are subsistence farmer and fisher. And when you have that saltwater intrusion that, you know, upsets the salinity, both in terms of contamination of, of the soil, but also of the freshwater aquifers, it does lead to food insecurity. One island nation that I talk about in sea change, the food insecurity was so severe there that they had to close schools early because this, the mm-hmm. kids who were, I think in in the K through six level, they couldn't concentrate during the day because they didn't have enough food to eat. So food insecurity is a is a huge concern, um, and I think that's that's something to to really be you know mindful of with regard to the impacts of sea level rise. Well, the so these islands to some degree are shrinking, but haven't some built artificial islands or or floating yeah. islands? Yeah. Yeah, thanks for 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 noting that. Absolutely. So, uh, as I mentioned, the GDP of islands in sea change varies radically, and, and most have very small GDPs. There's a couple of very wealthy islands that are in sea change: the Kingdom of Bahrain and also Singapore. And these are nations that have also expanded their footprints, and they do that by what gets termed infill. Um, the term land reclamation also gets used. I, I prefer the term infill because it really describes well what is actually happening. You are filling in to increase the footprint. Land reclamation, I think, is a problematic term because it makes it sound like you're reclaiming land where it once was, which is totally inaccurate. So if you look at, I've done this work for cities, um, for Boston, for New York, and also for San Francisco. It's a fun mapping uh, trick, and so much of my book, Sea Change, also involves uh, thinking about geography and cartography. So if you take a map from the United States Geological Survey from 1850 or so, and some of these are available in libraries. I use the Boston Public Library, New York Public Library, San Francisco Public Library, but you can also find them online. Take a map from 1850 from USGS. Um, look at look at the contours of the city and see what it originally looked like, the coastline. You can look at the current coastline on Google Maps. It's obviously really easy. And then you can go to Climate Central, which is a nonprofit that's based across the street from Princeton University. And I we used all of uh, their data for uh, this, the mapping in, in sea change. So you look at... Um, Climate Central has a sea level rise viewer. Your listeners can easily just look up Climate Central sea level rise viewer and find it. And there's a sliding scale ruler there where you can peck in your home address, slide the ruler up to three feet and see what three feet of sea level rise would look like or slide it up to five feet, whatever. What's interesting is if you look at the USGS map of, say, Boston or New York from 1850, and you look at the future sea level rise predictions on Climate Central, you will see a direct correlation in many different areas where the coastline was filled in, where it didn't previously exist, and where it will again be flooded. And the reason for that is simple. Water likes to reclaim where it once was. And I think there's a huge lesson in there. But many islands, especially in the Pacific Ocean, also along the east and west coast of the United States, are disproportionately inhabited by indigenous people. How much of an impact is this having on indigenous and black communities? 
That's right. So Sea Change does center the voices of indigenous and uh, black islanders because disproportionately uh, the islands that I'm naming in the book that I'm focusing on the book that are predominantly in the Pacific and then followed secondly closely by the Caribbean, they are predominantly but not exclusively inhabited by indigenous and black people. Um, they are frontline communities to the impact of sea level rise on islands. So I talk about, for example, Lennox Island, which is very close to Prince Edward Island, which has a majority indigenous population. Um, and they're there. They have lost a large percentage of their island. I talk um, in in the book about Ile de Jean Charles, which is in the Gulf of Mexico off the coast of Louisiana. And that is an island that has lost 98% of its land. Wow. And it is inhabited by three different tribes that relocated there after the they were forcibly moved from lands further to the east by the 1830 Indian Removal Act. They resettled there, and they are one of the first nations that the federal government has allocated money to resettle. So there is a community that has been there's there's housing basically that's been set up in a community center that's been set up for them inland and yet there are some people who really just don't want to leave Ile de Jean Charles because of the cohesion of the community that they had there um and then there's also Sarah Chef Island that I talk about off the western coast of Alaska. And that's an island that is impacted by increased temperatures. So most of its land is not frozen anymore as it used to be. And that thaw has led to toppling into the waters of uh, a lot of the housing structures that are on Sarah Chef Island. There's a similar discussion there afoot about allocating federal funds to move people from Sarah Chef inland. In Sarah Chef, interestingly, most of the islanders have voted to move inland because their their sustenance livelihood depends on being able to live there, obviously, but also being able to to uh, to hunt in the winter times, and they can't do that with the thawing of their island. So there's, you know, some some islanders have voted to move, some have not. Managed retreat is what this is called, and I talk about that concept in the book a bit. Um, a. R. Siders, who's a professor Climate at the refugees. university. Yeah, yeah, climate refugees. I mean, I'm glad you brought that up, Leonard, because climate refugees is not a term that's in the UN Convention on Refugees, which came out in 1950, because the term didn't exist at the time, right? So if we're talking about redoing financial structures that came out in the wake of World War II, I think re rethinking the Convention on Refugees that came out of the Nazi era and World War II is also an important one to revisit. And that that's a really important topic. There are islands uh, like the head of state of um, Kiribati, the former head of state of Kiribati, Anote Tong, which is one of the four most at-risk island nations that I mentioned previously, when he was head of state, he went so far as to buy land for his entire population on Fiji because he was concerned he was going to have to resettle all of them. Now, the issue there is that people on Fiji themselves are at risk for sea level rise. So even these kinds of relocations, which are going to be part of, of the story of, of the climate crisis and of sea level rise, even this kind of resettlement can be a it can be a problematic. I also looked in the Solomon Islands where they moved an entire community away from the coastline inland 
And that was a more successful effort to move. So, you know, it can work out. It can also be vexed. My guest on today's Leonard Lopate at Large is Christina Gerhardt, G-E-R-H-A-R-D-T. Her book, Sea Chain, Change, an Atlas of Islands in a Rising Ocean, published by the University of California Press. Well, doesn't data from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change predict that sea level rise will reach one foot by 2050 and three feet by 2100? So that's right. Yeah, inevitability so, here, isn't there? There is. Yeah. So we used for sea change. We used the science produced by the UN scientific body. That's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC for short. They put out a report. It's hundreds of scientists around the world, and they spend years hammering out. They have to reach consensus. So they spend years hammering out their positions before they put out these reports. And the most recent one was last year. It's the sixth assessment report. And it states that one foot of sea level rise is predicted by 2050, three feet by 2100. However, because these reports come out so intermittently every five years or so, that data is almost always superseded the minute that these reports are finally released. So I was on a panel for the book launch on on Tuesday, and Christina Hill, the colleague I mentioned previously from UC Berkeley, works on sea level rise impacts in the Bay Area. She And she's an IPCC contributing author. She said, you know, we're looking at eight to 10 feet by the end of the century easily. And she said that that's most of the, you know, scientists she talks about who work on sea level rise. Um, are looking at those kinds of figures. I know Michael Oppenheimer, who's a uh, former colleague at Princeton who works on sea level rise. He has also, you know, claimed, you know, or stated or named figures that are going to be higher in terms of the kinds of science that he's seen. So I, you know, I want listeners to be aware of when they look at sea change and they look at the maps in it, that most likely the impacts are going to be much more severe than what we outlined there. And it's it's been going on for a while. Uh, Didn't the Republic of Marshall Islands declare states of emergency in 2008, 2014 due to flooding? And now the, the mean elevation of the islands is around six and a half feet above sea level. So isn't it experiencing intense inundation during high tides? Yeah, that's right. So the the Republic of Marshall Islands is one of those four that I mentioned that are that are most uh, impacted by sea level rise. It does rest a mean elevation of six and a half feet above sea level rise. I mentioned, you know, the three feet inundation by the end of the century or up to eight to 10 feet. And they have declared a couple of states of emergency due to flooding. They've also declared states of emergency due to drought. So a lot of these island nations are faced by, you know, the double whammy of too much salt water, not enough potable fresh water, but also the double whammy of sea level rise on the one hand and drought on the other. And if we hear six and a half feet is, you know, the mean height elevation above sea level, and it's only going to get three feet by the end of the century, we shouldn't think that it's off the hook. Because even if you have that level of inundation taking place uh, on a regular basis through the high tides or the king tides, that's going to mean that you're living in a moldy, mildewy home that may not be underwater, but that is inundated so regularly that it becomes really uninhabitable. It's the kind of thing um, when Hurricane Ida came through September 1st uh, of 2021, right? It's it's the homes being inundated 
uh, and and just not inhabitable because of the kind of crisis that that has led to everything being flooded, even if the water recedes, that's going to be an issue. One of the things that your listeners might want to check out or even consider contributing to is you mentioned the high tides every spring in January or and in February, the so-called king tides take place. That's when the earth and the moon are at their closest, and they're also called the perigean tides. And so you can go to an area that's going to be impacted, say like Red Hook um, in, in the New York City area, and you can go down to the coastline and photograph and document any kind of flooding that you're seeing. And then you can upload that to uh, New Jersey has has a, a website where they have the king tides uploaded and New York has as well. This started in, in California, this king tides project, but it's a really cool citizen science project where you can get out in your neighborhoods and actually check out what's going on. And what you're seeing there, those areas that you see flooded, those the areas that are going to be most at risk by 2050 or 2100. I was surprised to see that even Jakarta, India, Indonesia's capital, is uh, having problems. The Java Sea, which surrounds it, is rising. And a, a big factor is that Jakartans, in need of potable water, which you just mentioned, have dug thousands of illegal wells that effectively deflate the marshes underneath the sea. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Underneath the city. So that's making it even worse. 40% of Jakarta lies below sea level now, with flooding becoming increasingly common. Yeah, yeah. I think Jakarta is is really um, impacted by, by sea level rise. I mean, it's already low-lying, which you just mentioned, and I think that's a really important you know issue to consider, is what's the baseline of sea level rise? Um, in, uh, of uh, of elevation that one is talking about because that's really going to be an important factor in measuring the future impacts. The New York Times just did an article that mentioned um, the impacts of sea level rise on cities around the world, and Jakarta was one of the ones that that was mentioned. Another article that you know that really turned heads, and uh, I think Oliver Millman at the Guardian was the one who first had had this story, but others quickly followed. He's at the at the Guardian. Um, is that the weight of buildings in New York City is causing New York City to sink, which is going to be a compounding factor for sea level rise. Now that's wow. That, yeah, that's that's a situation that's the weight in urban of buildings, which has nothing to do with with what we're talking about here, or are they related? It is related. It is related. The weight of buildings is causing, you know, islands like Manhattan to sink. Mm. I've read an article uh, years ago about San Francisco, the weight of buildings in San Francisco causing it to sink. And that compounds sea level rise because if you have, you know, the islands sink, that means the sea level is going to inundate even further. Now, there's natural subsidence subsidence is what this sink is also referred to. There's natural sink that takes place on a lot of islands. Islands, but islands that are prone to subsidence or subsidence um, are also going to see higher levels of sea level rise. So, you know, there's as I was working on sea change, I noticed there was a lot of nuanced details that you have to get into. You can't just again, sea level rise is not a line at the coast that's that's going to come towards. You have to think about it as inundation with geology, you have to think about whether or not the island that you're talking about is sinking, because that's going to mean it's more impacted. Uh, wave action. There are some yeah, islands. The answer is that, to move, right? 
Yeah, there's mo- exactly. No, there's movement. I talk about, um, you know, some of the, the, the shapeshifters or islands that, that move. Sarashef is an island that moves. So any island that is not anchored that moves has a whole different story with regard to sea level rise. I have to leave it there. Unfortunately, we're pretty much out of time. But uh, I recommend your book uh, to uh, to my listeners, uh, as does the new science, new scientist, which uh, named it one of the best science books of 2023. My great thanks to Christine, Christina Gerhardt. The book Sea Change, an Atlas of Islands in a Rising Ocean, published by the University of California Press. Where are you right now? Are you in Hawaii or are you back on the mainland? Um, I'm in San Francisco, which is home, San Francisco Bay Area. Um, so I'm phoning in from the, the West Coast. We're you know, obviously going to be impacted here. And I want to let your listeners know that University of California Press is having a sale on all their books through May 31st. So well, 40% we're offering off. It. We're offering to listeners to become members, and I'll get into oh, that in just great. a moment. Oh, so, that's great. That's great. Thank you. Thank and, you. And thank you so much for being on our show. It, it was great to be with you. That brings us to the end of our show. My great thanks to our executive producer, Keziah Glow, and our audio engineer, Reggie Johnson, for all of the invaluable work they do throughout the week. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 800 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, is available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you for your support because WBAI Pacifica is an important alternative to mainstream censorship where we address important issues that are often overlooked and give voice to the voiceless and marginalized among us. And we talk about things that you should know about in detail. We're asking all of our listeners who have the means to do so to make a contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or going online to give to WBAI.org right now because we need your help to keep bringing you this unique in-depth content information you usually don't get anywhere else. And as I mentioned earlier, anyone who makes a contribution of $50 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at large right now can receive a copy of the book we've been discussing, Sea Change and Atlas of Islands in a Rising Ocean by Christina Gerhardt. So why not make that call? 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy for $15, $20, $25, $30 a month. It allows us to plan for the future. But either way, I hope you'll do that right now because BI relies 100% on listener donations. Your donation is tax deductible. Uh, We are the only station on the New York radio dial that's 100% listener sponsored. We hope that you can join us again on Monday when our favorite language experts, Catherine and Ross Petrus, will join us and they'll be taking your calls. We'll see you then. Have a great weekend. 